and renewing of the Holy Ghost. I'd like to look at verses 6 and 7. We're not going to be going over them today, but let's read them together. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of our eternal life. I had considered just teaching the whole chapter today, all of chapter 3. It could have been done. Um, I try to not take too many truths in one morning and put them in your hearts and in your head and, and recognize that we can only have so much information at one time. So I try to take the portions of Scripture that naturally lend to the amount of information that I want to give you. And as I studied Titus 3 deeper, as I read on it and prayed on it, I came to the conclusion that although I could easily turn this into a three-point message, all of chapter 3, I kept getting hung up on verses 6 and 7. And I was considering, how can I turn verses 6 and 7 into one point or one part, a subpoint of a point? Can it be done? Of course. But I came to the conclusion that I would like to teach an entire message on just verses 6 and 7. Next week, we're going to have a message titled, Justified. And that message is going to be dealing with only Titus 6 and 7, although we will be going to other passages of Scripture, including the passages of Scripture that we see in the book of 1 John, where he talks about Justified. Now, you see justified here, it says not of works, and yet First John tells us we are justified by works. First John gives us some illustrations of being justified by works, including Abraham. I think there's, I don't think, I know there's a lot of confusion on justification. How a believer, how a Christian is justified. And people go to certain passages of Scripture, depending on what they believe, they go to those passages to prove what they believe while ignoring the rest. And next Sunday, I want to look at multiple passages of Scripture, not just the ones that clearly define what I believe to be justification, but even dealing with those who seem to allude to something else and spending the whole morning next Sunday on God's definition of justification, as seen not in one passage, but many passages. And then at the end of the service, we're going to take some time together as a church family and celebrate the Lord through taking the Lord's Supper. We'll have communion here at our church after the service, towards the end of the service, after the titled message, Justification. But today, we're just looking at verses 1 through 6. So let's go ahead and begin. I see three things this morning, the Christian's fruit, the Christian's roots, and the Christian's truth. The fruit, the roots, and the truth. These three things we are to remember this morning. These three things, Titus was not just told to remember, but he was told to impart this memory and remembrance on others, the church. It is so easy for us as we go through our daily lives to forget, to forget our fruit, what it is we are living for, to forget our roots, where it was we came from, to forget the truth that we claim we live by. It is so easiest for us to be caught up in the emotional and political, to be caught up in the social and economical problems, statements, and philosophies of the world. They're everywhere. When you turn on the TV, when you get on your phone, when you read a book, when you listen to conversations at work, it is very rarely this. It is almost always everything else. You are surrounded daily. You are saturated daily with truths that are not true, with philosophies that are not godly, with theologies that are not in the Bible, with feelings and, emotional and emotions that do not push you to God, but push you to the world. You are saturated by these things, which might be why the psalmist made it such an important part of his life to be still and to know God. 
to daily come before his throne with thanksgiving. The psalmist did not live in a perfect time. David was not surrounded by perfect men. David was surrounded by rough men, killers, warriors, military. These guys were rough around the edges. David was a king and constantly had people looking to take him down from the throne. David had to constantly realign his head and his heart with his God. And that was why David was able to, most of his life, remain close to the Lord. Constant realignment. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Realign our hearts and our minds with Christ. By remembering, first, our fruit. Letter A. God expects Christians to obey the law unless it contradicts his law. Look, God has not called you to be an outlaw. You know, Christians are not to be the rebels of society. Christians are not to be living outside of the law unless the law goes against his law. If you can show me in the Bible where the law of the land contradicts God's law, then I'm all for it. I'm on your side. If you cannot do that and you just don't like the law, if it bothers you, if it goes against your philosophy, if it's something you don't appreciate, you do not have a right to disobey it. Now, I do believe that there is some gray area. I believe that when it comes to our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit, I believe there is gray area. Although the Bible does not directly say that you should not put certain medications in your body, you should not put certain things in your body, the Bible does say that our bodies do belong to him. And we have the responsibility to take care of them. That is not just just to be determined by the types of food and the amounts of food, gluttony, that we impart on ourselves. But even types of medications, I believe, would be determined by that. And there does need to come a time where a Christian recognizes that what the medical field is commanding I take is not what I should be doing with the body that God has given me. Now, I say gray area because not all of us will agree where we land on that. But the point is this. If you can say, by Scripture, this is what God wants, and this is what the law commands, I must go with what Scripture says, then you are on safe ground. You will answer to God for that, right or wrong. And sometimes, as Christians, you will make the decision to step outside the law of the land because of the law of God. It does not mean it's without consequences. Just because you're doing what God wants doesn't mean God's going to protect you from the government's retribution. Doesn't mean that God's going to protect you from the punishment of the land when you disobey the laws of the land. Church history is full of Christians who have disobeyed the law and paid the price for it. And yet, church history is full of their own personal stories, their own biographies while in prison, while being martyred for the faith. They, to the end, said it was worth it. For God, it was worth it. If you're going to be punished for disobeying the law, do not be punished because you're an outlaw. Be punished because you are a follower of his law. And if you cannot separate his law and the world's law, then God says you have a responsibility to obey the law. Why is that? Because, Christians, the world is watching. Why would the world follow a bunch of outlaws, a bunch of rebels, There has to be a reason for what we do and why we do it, or we're going to lose the opportunity to reach the world with what? The greatest truth, Christ. 
If the world just sees us as a bunch of outlaws, a bunch of rebels, constantly disobeying the law because we do not like it, they will stop listening to what you have to say and how you have to live. Let it be. It's not the right of a believer to slander the name of another. So we're in Titus 3 verse 1. It says, put them in mind, the congregation believers, to be subject to magistrates. Verse 2, to speak evil of no man. You have no right to slander the name of another. You say, well, Pastor Russ, what if they're slandering my name? Then you should, if you have the opportunity, do your best to show others who you really are, not do your best to tear them down. See, that's playing dirty. And all that does really is when you slander the name of others, is just prove to others that they were probably right about you. You see, we think that in Christianity, the greatest offense or the greatest defense is a great offense, but that's not the case. It may work in sports. It does work in sports. The best defense is a great offense. Attack. Bring it to them. But in Christianity, that's not how we are to operate. Christians who are constantly attacking others while defending themselves will only make God look bad. Christians who attack others to make them look bad, make themselves look bad, and in turn make God look bad. It is not your job to tell the world how bad everyone is. It is your job to show the world how great God is. How forgiving, how merciful, how patient, how humble you are as you reflect your God. Too many Christians are too busy destroying others. They have no time to lift them up. And by the way, I ask you this. Once you've destroyed someone, what is the likely opportunity? What is the percentage of chance you will have to help that person meet Christ? Once you personally destroyed them. Pretty much non-existent. What's the chances of your church that you come from helping someone that you destroyed and they find out you are at that church? How many people walk into a church only to walk right out because they saw you sitting there? I'm not thinking of you individually in this room. There's no one I have in my head, but you get the idea. How many people come in and with five minutes are gone because someone was sitting in that church who destroyed them, who slandered them? They're not going to stay in a church that has that person actively involved, especially if that person's on stage speaking, preaching, or singing. You see, Christian, once you've slandered someone, you've lost the opportunity to help them. What's more important to you, to destroy them or to help them? What's more important to you, to attack them in defense of yourself or to help them in help of their own selves? Stop slandering the names of others and start honoring the name of God. And then let us see. Don't focus so much on the content that you fail in the presentation. Look at verse 2. To speak evil of no man but to be brawlers, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. Don't focus so much on the content that you fail in the presentation. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, we would play a variety of games. I was constantly trying to think of new games because with teenagers, uh, even if it's exciting, it's no longer exciting the third time. So I was constantly coming up with new stuff. And I would ask other youth pastors what they did, and I would read books, and I would come up with random things that no one else did. 
And one time, I bought a kid's meal, a Happy Meal. What teenager doesn't like a Happy Meal, right, from McDonald's? I'm not saying it's good food. I'm just saying they like it, generally speaking. And I brought the Happy Meal, still in the box, two youth groups sat on the counter. I said, okay, we're going to have a, a contest who can eat this Happy Meal the fastest. I need some volunteers. And I had mostly guys. I don't remember if there's any girls. They might have, but I called guys up. I knew what I was going to do. I called, like, two or three guys up, and they came up, and they are like, oh, yeah, I think I had two or three Happy Meals. We're going to, you know, split them up, and they're going to eat it so you can eat the fastest. And I said, okay, guys, have a... Uh, seat right here while I get your meal prepared. I brought out a blender, and I took all of the Happy Meal and put it in the blender, poured some soda in it, and blended it up. Now, I got to tell you, when I was done, it smelled like sewage, literally smelled like sewage when I was done. It was the same food. I didn't change anything about the, the actual food itself. I just mixed it all together for them to make it go down a little faster. Can you believe it? The guys actually drank it. Like, if I was a teenager, I'd be like, you know what? Never mind. You are a cheater. I'm done. I would have walked down. These guys are so prideful. They're like, we can't say no to this. They took the cup of sewage McDonald's Happy Meal and drank it. I don't remember if anyone puked. My memory is only visually, mostly of the, the smell and that what I did. I don't remember the consequence or the result of it. But I will tell you this. There's no way you'd be able to present to anyone what I made and ask them to buy it from you. No one is going to pay money for what I did to that food. It's the same food presented in a different way. I took it out of the Happy Meal box. The kids didn't, I might have given the toy to the guys. Maybe that was a consolation prize. I don't remember if I gave them the toy, but the truth is the food was the same, presented differently altogether. You know, a lot of churches, they've got truth. You know what they really struggle with? The presentation. A lot of Christians, you know truth. Your presentation is lacking. The way in which you present the truth through your testimony, through your attitude, through your emotional instability, the way you present your truth through anger and bitterness and pride, the way you present your truth through a lack of meekness, no one wants it. And you say, but everything you need is in here. Not the way you blended it all together. Not the way you giving it to me. I don't want it. And we're perplexed that the world doesn't want the truth. Why doesn't the world want the truth? The truth will set them free. The truth will save them from their sins. The truth will guarantee their eternity in heaven. Why don't they want their truth? Could it be you blended it in a cup? It smells like sewage and you don't know why they don't want it? Smell it. That's why they don't want it. Look at yourself in the mirror. Look at your facial expressions as you talk to people. Pay attention to the volume of your voice as you correct people, your children. As you talk to your spouse about things that concern you, why is it that every time you talk to your spouse, they're not listening because you're presenting them a cup of sewage presented in a way that no one in their right mind would want to drink? You are taking the truth and mixing it with your emotions and saying, drink this. You're taking the truth and mixing it with your own personal experience and own personal philosophy and saying, drink this. You're taking the truth and mixing it with your anger and your pride and saying, drink this. The truth is in there. And people say, I don't want it. Why is it so many children are walking away from God's church? Because their whole life they've been handed sewage, truth mixed with other in a way that no one in their right mind would drink. But children are forced to drink this. When they're old enough, they said, I'm done. I'm done drinking this sewage. They're not talking about God. They're not talking about truth. They're talking about the way you presented it. 
But to them, it's one and the same. Because all they know about God, parents, is what you're showing them about God. All they know about truth, parents, is what you're showing them and telling them about truth. So for them growing up, the truth of God and the truth of his word is attached to the way you presented it. And when kids are running from God's truth, I have to believe they're running more from the way it was presented than they are the truth itself. Because when you see the truth of God and when you see God in his glory, in his love, in his holiness, in his righteousness, I'm not saying everyone runs to that. We know they don't. But I'm saying it doesn't make sense that the high percentage of people running from the church are running from God in the way that he truly is. I don't believe that. They're running from God's people in the way they presented God to them. The presentation is lacking. Christian schools have made it all about rules. Church has made it all about rules. Where is God? They're not running from God. They're running from your presentation of God. Now, stay biblical. Stay true. Don't create a God in your mind that is appealing to them. The God of the Bible is the most appealing version of God. Present that God and do it humbly. Get yourself out of the way. Meekness. Meekness is considering how the other person feels, considering the success of the other person, considering the thoughts of the other person. Meekness is including the other person, but more so including prioritizing the other person over who? Yourself. Meekness does not prioritize them over God. You have no right to do that. But meekness does prioritize them over you. Now that is a presentation that people will want to receive. The truth presented in meekness. The Christian's fruit. Is your fruit rotten? You say, well, Pastor Russ, I really want to go to heaven, so I want to do what's right so I can go to heaven. Next week we'll talk about that. Doing what's right has nothing to do with you going to heaven. Doing what's right has a lot to do with other people going to heaven. You can't save them, and you doing what's right won't save them, but you doing what's right may lead them to salvation, Christ. When you don't do what's right, you are pushing them away from what you've already got, Christ. Your fruit isn't for you. Your fruit is for the one who's going to eat it. And first and foremost, that's your family. You are force-feeding your fruit to your family. They don't have a choice. I have a choice. If I'm not related to you, I don't have to hang out with you. You don't have to hang out with me. You can or cannot eat the fruit in my life. It's your choice. Your, your spouse and your kids have no choice. And when you force feed your kids and your spouse rotten fruit, don't be shocked when they get sick. Get sick of what you're giving them. Number two, the Christian's roots. I love how Paul, when he speaks to Titus, he says, Titus, remember where you came from and remind your church where they came from. Where did they came from? What was their roots? Their roots were not in something glorious. Their roots were in something wicked. In verse 3, we were sometimes, we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hateful, hating one another. Hateful in general and directly hating people. This is our roots. Christian, it is easy for you to be prideful when you forget your past. 
When you've forgotten your past, you're going to think of yourself as better than you actually are. <laughs> you want to stay humble? Remember your past. They say, well, Pastor Russ, I was saved at a young age. I was saved at five. My past isn't really dark. I don't have a whole lot of horrible things in my past. Well, I'll tell you what. Are you human? Yes. Then you had a dark past. You're a sinner. Even if you're saved at a young man, as a young man or young woman, even as a young child, you are a sinner. You've got a dark past. I may not know it. No one else knows it, but be honest with yourself. You know you had a dark past. Remember that. It'll keep you humble. Letter A. All Christians share a common past. That'll keep you humble. We are not better than others. We are not more saved than others. We are saved from our past when others were not. But if you are a Christian and I am a Christian, then we share a common past and we are all saved from that past. God does not save the good. God saves the evil. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one good save God. God saves the evil from their past. This church is not full of good people. This church is full of people who have been saved by a good God. Now, we want our fruit to recognize that this, we have a good God in our life, and we want our fruit to illustrate this good God, but you must remember that your fruit is not to point to you because you're not good. Your fruit is not to convince others that you are good. It's a lie. You know that. I know that. We are not good. Even in our salvation, we are not good people. Don't live a good life to deceive someone that you're a good person. Live a good life to show others that even a bad person can be saved by a good God. And how a good God can use a bad person. And how a good God can change. Can change us, yes, but not into perfect people. That doesn't happen. Yes, there is change in the life of a believer. And the believer ceases to become a, someone who is constantly given over to wickedness, constantly dwells in sin, but it does not keep us from the sin in our life. We are still sinners. We're just saved from sin this time. Letter B. The unsaved sin in deception. The saved sin under conviction. The saved still sin. What makes us different from the unsaved? We know when we're sinning. We accept when we're sinning. We excuse our sin. We justify our sin. We repent from our sin and go right back to it again. <laughs> but we're not deceived. Like Adam and Eve, Adam knew full well what he was doing when he ate the fruit. Eve was deceived. She truly thought it was a good thing. Consider this, Christian. You yell and scream at the world for sinning. They think they're doing what's right. They think the choices they're making are best for the world and their future kids. Not all, can't say all, many, many, many people think that their sinful choices are the right choices for them and their kids. You have no excuse. You cannot say that. You want to yell and scream, go look in the mirror. Yell and scream at yourself for sinning with the full knowledge of what it is that you do. The world is deceived, and they will continue in their deception if we yell at them while claiming we are good. When anyone with two eyes knows we are not. 
Our fruit is not for us. It is for the world. And our fruit is not to convince the world that we are good. Our fruit is to convince the world that we serve a good God. And that a good God can take bad people and help them stop living under conviction. Meaning they do what's right because they love God rather than do what's wrong, justifying their own choices. Even when you do what's right because you love God, that still doesn't make you a good person. Because deep down, we're still always going to be sinners until we are taken to heaven in eternity. Letter C. Our mental health is attached to our spiritual condition. Take a look again at verse 3. Deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Envy, malice. Malice is that bitter hatred. That is a mental health problem, bitter hatred. That will destroy your relationships. That will destroy you. When we are not running to God, we are running towards mental health problems. Our emotional health is attached to our spiritual health. Our emotional condition is attached to our spiritual condition. Are you having problems with anger? Are you having problems with depression? Are you having problems with uh, 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 bitterness and, and hatred? I'm not saying that run to God and all of these will be eliminated. Some of these issues you have are a personality thing. They're attached to your personality. But I'll tell you what, your personality will take it a whole lot further the further you get from God. You could be right next to God and still have anxiety in your life, but it will no longer control you if you're next to God. You could be right next to God, and there is anger that comes quickly in your life, but it will no, no longer destroy your family because you are next to God. The anger comes, but it is controlled by the Spirit of God within you. You could be right next to God and still have moments of depression, but that depression will not tear your family apart as you lock your door and sleep in your bed for five days straight without eating or leaving the room. Next to God, the depression still creeps in, but next to God, the depression does not control you. I'm not saying God eliminates mental health from you. I'm not saying that God gives you a perfect health mental condition. I do not believe that. I believe Christians still must battle the flesh, including the emotional side. But you won't lose the battle next to God. The battle's still there. Anxiety and depression and anger, they will still be there because you are a human being and you are not a good one. But next to a good God, you won't lose. You win next to God. Your emotional condition is attached to your spiritual condition. Draw close to God. And number three, the Christian's truth. Remember, remember the Christian's fruit. Why it is we do what we do. Why it is we display the love of God, not for us, but for them. Remember the Christian's roots, where you came from. You were bad. Now you're just bad and saved. But you can have victory next to Christ. And then, number three, the Christian's truth. And let's take a look at verse five. I'm sorry, verse four, excuse me. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, not something we did, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Letter A, we didn't chase down God. He came to us. 
If it was up to us to chase down God to be saved, everyone's going to hell. Everyone's going to hell. The best we can do is respond to a God who chased us down. God came to this earth. He chased you down. God sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world. He chased you down. God gave you his word printed in the Bible. He chased you down. God sent someone who loves him into your life to tell you about him. He chased you down. God has been chasing you down since the moment you came into this earth. How did you respond? You see, you didn't run after him. He ran after you. And then, once you got saved, he said, now I want you to chase them down. Now you be my feet. You be my hands. You be my voice. And now you chase down them for me. Because God is in the business of chasing people down. That's how much he loves them. After our wickedness, in verse 4, after our depravity, after our, our self-destruction, in verses 3, I'm sorry, verse 3, then verse 4, what happens? Then the kindness and love of God appears. Then it showed up. We ran from God. God ran faster. Letter B, self-righteousness equals self-destruction, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Our salvation does not come through our own works. I will talk more on that next week. I will show you scripturally Old Testament, New Testament, justification, how it is by faith. Yes, I understand 1 John. It is a confusing book, and we will deal with that. Because 1 John does say we're justified by our works. I will deal with that. But I'm telling you today, we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what Christ did. There is no such thing as self-righteousness. It's a lie. Self-righteousness is an oxymoron. You cannot bring righteousness to yourself. You cannot do anything to achieve righteousness on your own. It is imparted righteousness. It is given righteousness. It is merciful, gifted righteousness from Christ. Not self-attained. Because all you can create is self-destruction. When you attempt to be righteous outside of Christ, you will only find destruction. It is prideful to believe that you can be good enough without God, and pride is followed by destruction. Letter C. The payment of Christ is more than enough to cover the cost of our sin. The payment of Christ is more than enough to cover the cost of our sin. Verse 5. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. He saved us. God, the Father, imparted righteousness on us when we have faith in God the Son. And then the Holy Spirit renews, brings us into fellowship spiritually with the Trinity. All three parts of God's Trinity are involved. God the Father saves us by God the Son and our faith in him through God the Holy Spirit. For by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast.
The payment of Christ is enough. There are some people who are really good at using words to convince you of logic. That logically, if you do this and this, this will happen. There are people who are natural-born debaters, and they could convince you of anything if you get them long enough, if you give them long enough time to speak to you. But i got to tell you this, folks. Do not let the logic of man ever convince you of anything outside of the Word of God. If the logic of man contradicts the Word of God, you need to step back and say, forget your logic, the Word of God is clear. Now, the logic of man will try to convince you of many things, including you are good enough on your own, and there's no way that the death of one man could ever give you the gift of salvation. But God's word includes promises outside of the logic of man. God's word includes promises outside of the will and the ability of man. God is the creator. And God is the one who not only created man, but God created the rules of mankind. And the one who creates the rules gets to decide when the rules can and cannot be broken. And God said, here's the rule. All humans are sinners and must go to hell. But I will allow them to break that bond of hell if they receive the payment that I set up. And God said, the only payment that I'm setting up to break their bond to hell is Jesus Christ. It may not seem logical. It may not make sense, but God created the rules. And God says, this is the only way. Christ is the only way to heaven. Any other path, any other religion, any other belief system, any other life choice outside of Christ doesn't get you to heaven. God gets to decide the rules. He's told us the rules. He's guaranteed his character has guaranteed the promise offered in Scripture. Christ is the way. It may seem in your human mind that there has to be more. How could we possibly be saved by trusting in Christ who did something 2,000 years ago? How could that possibly result in eternity? The only way it could is if the creator of the world says it does. And that requires faith. Your faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. And Christ will save you. When your faith is in him. Your prayer doesn't save you. Your baptism doesn't save you. Your church attendance doesn't save you. Christ saves you. If you will trust in the guarantee he offers in scripture. Can you trust the creator of the world to tell you the way, the truth, and the life? His name is Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this reminder. As Christians, we do live in a world corrupted by sin. And it's so easy for us as Christians to revert back to that sin. For us to not display the fruit that we should, but instead present sewage and expect people to drink it. I think there will be many of us in this world who will be very, very disappointed in ourselves when we get to heaven and we recognize that the lack of salvations were not due to a lack of your power, not due to a lack of your love, not due to a lack of your desire for revival. It was due to the presentation of your church to the world. We have misrepresented you, your truth and your love. And in doing so, we've turned people away. If that is the case for Meriden Hills, please convict us, show us, 
the error? What do we need to change so that your truth, your gospel, is presented clearly in the best way possible? I thank you for the reminder of our past. And the fact that we've been saved from our past does not eliminate our past. And many of us are still suffering consequences from our past. I pray that would not discourage us, but humble us. And in humility, we'd recognize that victory over our past and through our past is by your side. Draw us closer to you. And God, finally, I pray we'd remember the truth at all times. As the world screams political left and right, as the world screams philosophies and lifestyles in our ears, as the world tries to convince us of their logic about what is life and what comes after this life, I pray that we would not listen to the screaming of the world, but remember the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.